Welcome to Inside Maine, a podcast that talks about issues of importance to Maine and the country. This is Angus King, your host, and uh, October is Cyber Awareness Month. And I know that sounds sort of dry, but it really isn't. It's something that's important to everybody in our state and in the country. It's one of the most serious issues uh, that we face in this country, and it's a matter of uh, economics, of national security, of personal privacy. There are all kinds of important aspects of this. And my guest today, I'm delighted to have Peter Singer, who is an author and a novelist. And you may be saying, well, why is he talking about cyber? And the answer is he's also a technologist. And uh, the books that he writes are often centered on technology and the effect of technology on our society, on national security. Uh, the book uh, that I first encountered him in is a book called Ghost Fleet, which is an account of World War III, heaven forbid, uh, that has a lot to do with technology and cyber. Uh, and by the way, the star of the book is the Zumwalt built at uh, Bath Ironworks. So I'm partial to the book for that reason. Peter, welcome. Uh, glad you could join me. And uh, how do we how do we convince our listeners that cyber is something they should pay attention to? Well, first off, thank you so much, Senator, for having me in that kind introduction. Um, I think you hit it exactly right in terms of cyber is one of those rare issues that connects the global, the national, but also the business, the personal. Um, and it moves across a variety of different issue areas. So whether you care about your personal finances, your personal privacy, you care about threats to our democracy, you care about um, public health and what's playing out in the pandemic, um, it is the issue that brings that all together in the same place. And by the very fact that we have to have a month on it, we're doing decent, but not perfect at it. Again, at the level of global, national business, all the way down to individual. Um, we still face a wide variety of threats. And, you know, frankly, there's some that we're doing well, and there's other ones that we're not doing so well at. And, and you, you know, you live and work that every day. Well, one of the, one of the realities that's, that's very different in terms of, of cyber is that we think of conflict traditionally for a thousand years as army versus army, navy versus navy, uh, soldiers fighting each other on a battlefield. In this case, the target space is 85% in the private sector. It's your local bank. It's the airline's computer system. It's the electrical grid that supplies power to your house. So it's not like, you know, we can deploy, uh, you know, the, the Department of Defense. And a lot of the defense has to start. I, what I like to say is uh, cybersecurity starts at the desktop. It has to involve individuals making good decisions about what kind of emails they click on, how sturdy their password is, and those kinds of things. It's, I think that's one of the things that's most interesting about this is this is a new kind of conflict. There's several ways that plays out. You know, one is the idea that it is a conflict that plays out over networks that are primarily owned and operated by the private sector. So the battle space itself, so to speak, is is private. It's it's not 
the government that's running most of these networks. It's the private sector. As you hit it, it's also the private sector all the way down to individuals are the target of much of the activity. And again, whether the activity is something that it's a a foreign government trying to steal information on the design of, um, be it a a warship uh, made in Bath or trying to steal negotiating strategy for a company that's gonna be doing a deal with China, or it might be your own personal financial information where after that individual target, it's also the same that other side of all of this, which is not just about hacking the network, but hacking the people on the network. When we think about mis and disinformation, so much of that is after you, your beliefs, but also your shares, what you're distributing out across that network. And when I think about the response to this, you hit it in terms of, you know, there's got to be this collective response. It operates at the government level, but it's also about you, the individual. I think there's a great parallel there to public health. You know, we've got the role of the CDC. We've got the role of private sector in inventing and producing vaccines. But there's also the individual's responsibility, masking, washing your hands, getting that vaccine. It's the same thing in cybersecurity. You know, yes, we have the military cyber command, but that's not enough. It also means you need good passwords. Well, and, and uh, most of these uh, attacks that we've heard, these ransomware attacks, which, by the way, generally aren't a nation state, they're criminals, probably, at least in the case of Russia, tolerated by the nation state. But in any case, they often start with a phishing email. Some, some you know, a, a, an official in a pipeline company clicks on an email that says, uh, you've, you've got a bonus due from your insurance company, uh, click here. Uh, to get more information. And the next thing you know, the bad actors have control of that company's network. That's how they start. I have a friend in the energy business, and he says the policy in his business is that they themselves send fake emails to their employees to test them. And if you click on one the first time, you get a reprimand. The second time, you're in the CEO's office. The third time, you're gone. Because this is so, you're, you're, that's where so much of the vulnerability is. What you're hitting on is a couple of things. The first is um, the value of what they call red teaming, where you don't wait for the threat. You try and first um, discover those vulnerabilities in your networks. And so companies and government agencies that do this well tend to constantly test themselves. They're constantly trying to find those vulnerabilities. And it might be overall software vulnerabilities. They also tend to run scenario war games. What would we do in this situation rather than waiting for it to happen? So my bet is um, your friend in the energy sector, they've probably already run a war game of, well, what would happen if we were hit with ransomware? What are the decisions that we would have to make? What would we decide? You want to game that out rather than you know having to figure it out at 2 a.m. over the phone um, when someone's sitting inside your network already and they're, they're blackmailing you. And then there's that part of testing at the individual level, going after your your members, and again, it might be employees or whatnot, where essentially you're trying to test them and, you know, have it as part of an education program. Hey, you fell for this. This is what you can do so that it doesn't happen again. And then you get to the other part of this, which is that all that testing, all that advisory, it's not enough if we don't have consequences of some kind. And that's where we've, and you know, again, you're very much in the mix of this. That's where we've been stuck for essentially the last couple of decades 
where for the most part, it's been reliant on whether it's government agencies or um, corporations, it's been reliant on their goodness to do best practices and it's not been enough. And well, what I, we're seeing I, is a move towards more requirements. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we can talk more about resiliency and defense, but uh, you've jumped to what I call deterrence, which has been sorely lacking. We cannot patch, patch our way out of this. We've got to, the best cyber attack is the one that doesn't occur. And the way to make it not occur is to make the adversary understand that they're gonna pay a price. And the problem is this country has not been very good about requiring that a price be paid over uh, the last, as you said, couple of decades. And therefore, people say, why not? If you're sitting in the, in the Kremlin and somebody says, well, let's see what we can monkey around with over there in the U.S., there's no r real reason not to. Uh, it's cheap. I, don't, I once was sitting in an armed services committee and did a back-of-the-envelope calculation. Putin can hire 8,000 hackers for the price of one jet fighter airplane. So this is a cheap way of, of harming your adversary. And unless they feel like they're going to pay a price, they're going to keep doing it. There's no reason not to. So we've been working. Uh, this is, has to ultimately come from the president. And President Biden did take take this up with Putin a couple of months ago and began the process of educating uh, the world that we weren't going to be a cheap date in cyber, uh, that we there would be a response. And and I think you agree that that's I think that's been the missing piece in America's cyber strategy. It's definitely uh, a missing piece, but it's also not the only missing piece. Um, what you're talking about is that need to alter people's calculations, to alter the incentives that are out there. And that needs to happen with the attacker side. So making it clear to foreign governments that, hey, there is a price that's going to be paid. This is not all benefit, no cost to you. Also, not just for your official government activities, but when, just as you put it, you're turning a blind eye to gangs that are operating within your border. Um, and so, you know, it's, we're going to alter the way you think about it. We're going to alter your incentives. You also want to alter the marketplace for those threats. You want to basically, you know, do the equivalent of throwing sand into the gears. You want to create some friction. So they very much rely on marketplaces in terms of everything from gaining their tools to how do they turn what they're stealing into uh, wealth, into cash or Bitcoin or whatnot. You want to go after those marketplaces, make them um, less functional. But we also have to alter the incentives and the approach of those that are under attack. We have to build that resilience. And so we have to do a better job of incentivizing, whether it's government agencies, down to critical infrastructure companies, et cetera, to do a better job at defending their own networks. And that means everything from them cooperating with each other, sharing information, sharing information with government. But also we're gonna to have to think through um, what liability means in a world where it's no longer just losing um, information that might be you know, slightly embarrassing to you if your email got out. But when we're talking about critical infrastructure, we're moving into a world where these threats can shut down systems that range from, you know, we've already experienced city governments, hospitals, schools shutting down, to we're looming towards a world where you could cause physical effect. 
You might go after water systems. Well, hold that hold that thought for a minute because we're going to come back. Uh, we need to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk, sort of back up a bit and talk about why this is so serious and why people need to give the kind of attention to it that is beginning to happen across the country. But first, we're going to take a quick break. This is Angus King on Inside Maine. Stay with us. We'll be back with Peter Singer, the godfather of cyber, in just a few minutes. Welcome back to Inside Maine. This is Angus King. We're talking to Peter Singer, who's an author, technologist, and uh, one of the leading figures in thinking about the cyber risk and what it means. Uh, Peter, I wanted to back up a minute. I mean, I think a lot of people listening are saying, oh, yeah, that's something that happens to, you know, a, a major utility company or a pipeline company or to the federal government, but it, it doesn't really bother me. I have visited small banks in Maine that are being attacked 100,000 times uh, in a week. And I'm sure that our utilities in Maine and in New England and across the country, well, I talked to one utility executive, his company's attacked 3 million times a day of people trying to hack into his system. So give me your sort of big, you know, back uh, large picture about how serious this is. Look around your office, look around your home, and count the number of little tiny lights, the number of devices that in some way, shape, or form are linked to a network. And the ones that you see, of course, they multiply them out, the ones behind the scenes that you don't even see, but they're also linked up to a network of some kind. So whether it's inside your home and it's everything from the electricity to maybe you've got a smart alarm to maybe you're getting delivery systems for your groceries or whatnot to we could have the same kind of conversation about a local school we could have a post office it might be a bank it might be um, a company that makes hockey equipment whatever it is everyone is increasingly reliant on networks and the key change is this not just for their communication sending back email, sharing billing data, whatever that is. It's also increasing for the operation, for the systems that they rely on. Again, whether it's the power, whether it's the water, whether it's the billing system, whatever it is, they're increasingly reliant on the internet for the operation. And so that's why it's such a tempting target, particularly to hold, not just to steal information, but increasingly, as you noted, to to hold hostage, to hold ransom. Um, and we have seen, you know, both major corporations hit by ransomware, but also um, small town school systems and um, small business, you name it. And so it's not just a tempting target, but it also means that the, the scale, the potential harm is really changing. It's moving from just being um, something that's a loss of data that might have a financial consequence or maybe a, an embarrassing or even sometimes political consequences if we look back at um, elections but it's also increasingly going to have a physical consequence that is it's going to cause things to break and those things that might break range from you know something operating in your home to something operating at that city that town and mains infrastructure 
Peter, one of the things we were, we've been talking about is that we're really in a conflict situation. And I mentioned that we have to rethink conflict because so much of this is in the private sector. However, the government has a definite role to play, but we need to develop relationships of trust uh, and mutual information sharing between the government and the private sector that's really new that's that's a this is this is it doesn't come naturally to to uh, businesses to say oh yeah i'm going to immediately call uh, the government to help me with this problem so that's another thing that we have to rethink exactly and in this space the government is more in a supporting role than often in a leading role. And that's, that's often difficult for kind of government to wrap its head around. But um, some of the changes that we've seen in the last couple of months at this, I'm pretty positive on. Um, one, for example, is uh, the National Security Agency. You know, the, these are the folks that have worked on, you know, code breaking and cybersecurity and all the movies and the like. They have traditionally been fairly distant from the private sector. And what they've done in the last couple of months is they've brought in a number of private sector, basically they're allowing employees to embed in their agency so that they have that day-to-day -day information sharing. Another thing that's happened to build up trust is you have to provide me information that I find valuable. And so in the last several months, they've been more often pushing out data about threats, about new patches that are needed, about what they're seeing on their networks that private business would also benefit from knowing about. And so, you know, when you're talking about building up trust, it takes time, but they've been doing, um, I'm pretty positive about what they've done in the last several months. Well, one of the things that's heartening is we've got a sort of an all-star cast right now of people that are involved in this. Paul Nakasone is a general who's in charge of NSA and Cybercom, one of the smartest people I've ever encountered. We have a new national cyber director, a guy named Chris English, that I've worked with for the last couple of years, a woman in the White House named Ann Newberger, and then Jen Easterly at CISA, which is the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Agency. And that's a really good team. And I think the public should feel that they've got some really quality people working on this and a lot of other people. And those are just the sort of top people. But the, that trust, as you talked about, is so important. If we get a report from a bank that they're under attack with a certain kind of uh, software, then the federal government can reach out to other banks and say, look out for this. This is, uh, this is coming at you. And that's the kind of thing that I think can be most helpful. It's very much an all-star group and it's not the case it was, you know, years back, you often had to kind of Google who are these people being put in this position. Each one of those, they were known quantities, known all-stars, respected by, you know, members of both party and also some really deep experience, um, you know, and including when you talk about Jen Easterly, she comes out of the private sector just having run, to use your example, she's just been running cybersecurity for a major bank. And so then she's back into government. And so she brings that private sector experience and network into government. So it's it's a great team. Uh, I'm very high on it. Um, I think one of the interesting challenges is this human side that we're talking about both within government we have to replicate this sort of version of an all-star group across not just federal government but you need it at state and local um but you also have a human gap in terms of the private sector and as well you know this is one of the most in-demand 
fields. We just don't oh, have enough people working there, cybersecurity. There, right there now. are literally tens of thousands of jobs that we can't fill because we don't have people with the qualifications. If if I were if I were 25 years old today, I'd think about going to going to school to learn cybersecurity because there are so many opportunities out there, and it's 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 one of the dangers, frankly. If we can't fill that workforce gap, uh, we're not going to be able to to deal with this issue. That's where it's both a um, personal issue and a policy issue. So there's these opportunities, but um, there's also the need to, frankly, update our education system and um, thinking about not only expanding that pipeline uh, to meet this demand for talent, um, you know, how do we alter what we're doing in vocational ed? How do we create more opportunities, et cetera? Um, there's also the other part of this, which is um, raising the levels of uh, cybersecurity um, literacy or sometimes called digital literacy on both the classic um, threats of, you know, don't click that link, but also the information warfare, the mis and disinformation side. It's a whole other area where we need to update what we're doing across the board in education. You know, literally this is from, it's not just a university level and community college level question. It's also a K through 12 question. Well, let's hold that thought. I want to, we're going to take a quick break and be right back, but I want to talk about disinformation and how we're going to combat that because that's a separate thing from, you know, throwing a switch and putting the uh, electric grid offline, but it can be just as dangerous, particularly in a democratic country. So stay with us. We'll be right back on Inside Maine. We're back. This is Angus King on Inside Maine talking about cyber, the threat to virtually everything that we know about in our country. And when we left, we were just talking about disinformation. And this isn't a case of passwords or phishing emails. It's a question of being more knowledgeable about what's coming into our inbox and how to tell fact from fiction. And you were saying, Peter, you don't think it's a university issue. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. This has to start in elementary school, teaching kids how to use the internet safely and, as I say, determine fact from fiction. So you have this new concept that we're calling cyber citizenship, and it brings together the three elements that anyone needs to navigate the internet safely and effectively. And let me be clear here, I'm talking about, you know, the challenge of everything from maybe a foreign government attacking our democracy and trying to influence your vote to someone that's trying to shape what you do in public health. They're sending conspiracy theory related to coronavirus to issues of extremism to just a company that's trying to influence you to go see their movie or, you know, to give a personal example, I've got kids, they get an assignment to do a paper on who built the pyramids. They don't go to the world book anymore. They go to YouTube and within a couple of hops, they're being steered to it's aliens that built the pyramids. They actually didn't. But the point is, is that you need these skills <laughs> for whatever you're doing online. And they basically bring together three elements. One is critical thinking skills, what's often called digital literacy. It's that ability to distinguish fact from opinion, to understand the role of evidence, to understand the role that algorithms play in steering what you click on. You know, why do they end up going to aliens built the pyramids? Because that's what's popping up on the right-hand side of the screen. That's what's being suggested to them. But that 
that critical thinking skill, that's not enough. There's a second element, which is the civics citizenship side. It's um, not what you know, it's how you behave online. You know, don't be a troll. Don't be a cyber bully. How are you being a good citizen? But then there's the final third part, which is threat awareness. And in cybersecurity, we've usually focus just on that, you know, don't click the link threat awareness. We also need to understand, okay, here's how people are trying to influence me online. Here's how they're trying to take advantage of my emotions or my identity. And it's that coming together of those three that's just so crucial for us to build in the United States. The nations, um, you can do it in a democracy. And let me and note, in no way did I say change your first amendment rights it it's not about that it's about giving people the skills to navigate this nations like estonia finland sweden they teach this and they've got very thriving democracies in the us you know we've got around 11,000 different school systems um, when you look at you know the local and county level some of them teach these skills a lot of them don't and of the ones that do teach it they definitely don't have the capability right now or the support to deploy the best teaching tools. Um, we, for example, did an interview of, of a teacher who's actually teaching this in her class. And we said, well, how did you get the curriculum? Where'd you find it? They said, I Googled it. That's not the best way to get <laughs> curriculum to teach digital literacy. So there's just a huge role here, again, for federal, state, local to come together the way we do in school but again, it also connects to the personal, the parent. You know, I think of the parallel of good hygiene. You know, I teach my kids, wash your hands, cover your mouth when you cough, but they also learn hygiene in school. It's a coming together around it. Well, and I think that's, it's really crucial. The, the, uh, the term algorithm is a word that's, that's more and more being used. And what it really means is if you go on the internet and, and look for sofas, all of a sudden you're going to find yourself inundated with ads for sofas. And it's because there's an algorithm that says, oh, this person's interested in sofas. That's what we're going to send them. That's no problem. The problem is if you if you click on one article about, you know, Mike Pence or whoever it is, you're then going to get more and more that, that are going to try to fit what you're looking for or maybe what they think you're looking for. And uh, you end up in the rabbit hole. And, and it's uh, there's a film. I think it's called The Social Dilemma. Is that is that the I saw it several months ago. Yes. You from, I think that's a film that every parent should watch. And it would be helpful to watch it with your kids because it it, it really is very powerful about how these technologies are manipulating us. And it's one thing when it's, they're manipulating us to buy something. But is when they're manipulating us in ways that are not good for our democracy, that's something that we ought to be have a better understanding of. And that idea of sending you down the rabbit hole is the connection point between this and everything from the hyperpartisanship that's um, struck our nation to the way that certain conspiracy theories have taken off. Uh, it's the idea of how algorithms steer people in a certain direction and then keep feeding them, keep feeding that addiction. And so they identify you based off of not just what you click you like, but people just like you with a similar identity, a similar, whether it's geographic location, age, race, maybe income level, whatever it is. And then it sends you into a community of the like-minded. 
and then you only see information from those that are like-minded only see information that reinforces prior biases and prejudice and so that's how we get to this situation where it's as if we're living in completely different realities because we're in totally different information ecosystems that's right. bad enough for partisanship what's dangerous is when those falsehoods are ones that stoke violence or lead people to do things that are harmful to themselves or the broader public when you think about how like QAnon or um, anti-vaxxer conspiracy theory has taken off. Well, uh, we have a sign on our kitchen wall in Brunswick, Maine, that says, the problem with quotes on the internet is that you can't determine their authenticity. Abraham Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> so that, 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 sort of, that sort of summarizes it. But it really is a, it's a serious problem, particularly in a democracy where the whole thing is driven by information and by citizens making the critical decisions. And if the information stream is corrupted and people don't have the right information or don't have a variety of sources of information, you're going to get uh, bad decisions that are going to be troublesome for the society. Well, in a, in a few minutes that we have left, I think one other factor, Peter, that worries me about this is we were talking earlier about nation states, about Russia or China, that are doing these kinds of attacks. I worry that in the future, we're gonna be facing these kinds of attacks from terrorists. Instead of flying an airplane into a building, they're gonna, with a stroke of a, a computer key, try to take down uh, Wall Street. And we talked about deterrence. Deterrence doesn't really work with those folks. Uh, they don't really care what happens to them. And I see that as a looming problem when the uh, terrorist groups, the non-state actors get a hold of these technologies, which they can. That's just going to multiply the complexity of this. I want to not lose one thread on um, what you were asking. I'm going to answer that question, but I want to be sure to leave your listeners with a little bit of a toolkit uh, in terms of, you know, everybody thinks they're the ones online that are the rational ones and they can't fall prey to this, but we all fall prey to this being targeted by mis and disinformation. And just like that movie that you mentioned, there's another sort of um, handy way of thinking about how you operate in this space. And it's called the SIFT method. And it's basically the idea of when you come across an information source in your Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, stop, take a pause. They're, they're trying to get you to click rapidly, respond rapidly, share rapidly, take that pause. Don't let emotion take over. Sift next after S is I investigate, investigate the source, find out where it came from. Is it something that uh, is, is well known or is it some, you know, made up website recently? Then there's the F in SIFT, which is find alternative coverage. How is this topic, again, whether it's what to vote on to what to know about coronavirus or even what movie, find other sources of information. And then the final thing is T, trace the original context. Where did this come from? And so it's a really valuable way to rapidly think about how to, how to approach this space. Um, to your question about the threats of both states and terrorists. Yeah, we're, we're already starting to see it now, and I expect it's going to continue because of that low barrier to entry, so to speak, in this space, that it doesn't take a huge amount of investment, not just for, you know, you mentioned the example of a Putin employing hackers, but whether you're a smaller, weaker state or a corporation or even some kind of extremist group or terrorist group or criminal group, 
it's not the cost of you know building an aircraft carrier and yet you can get pretty high effect on it and that's why again we've got to do a better job of defending because the threat's not going to go away it's only going to continue it's most likely going to expand as the targets expand and the like and so that's why you want to alter the way that people both the attacker thinks about it changing their calculations making it harder for them, making them think they're not gonna get as much out of it, they're gonna face certain kind of punishments, but also doing a better job of building up resilience on the defender side. And again, that might be resilience in terms of, you know, how we better protect our networks, or it might be resilience in terms of essentially the human targets understanding and less likely to be pulled in by that threat, less likely to become what the Russians would call a useful idiot uh, as the translation of it. It's basically the target that does the work for them. Well, listen, this has been a great conversation. We could we could go on for the rest of the day. But uh, Peter, I really appreciate your thinking. You've, you've really given us some, some uh, a toolkit. Let me mention one on my own that I've learned in my uh, classified briefings. I don't know why it's not more widely known. Two things. One, if you turn your phone off altogether about once a week, you're much less likely to be hacked. Apparently, the, the, the hackers, it's hard to get into a phone, but once they're in, they're in. But if you turn it off, they have to start all over again. That's number one. And number two, there's a little device you can get that you can use when you plug into your phone into a public network at a hotel or at the airport or something like that, that will block the ability of somebody to use that network to compromise your data. Very, it's a little device that looks like a thumb drive and uh, you know it's not very expensive. So there are things that we can do and we're just gonna have to continue to do those things that, uh, that we uh, protect ourselves. It's, it's a new world and I'm sure we can figure out there will be new uh, ideas that come forward. But uh, Peter, again, I wanna thank you so much for your time and for the work that you've done. Peter, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me.